And now, a Sorry Wrong Door production of a podcast for your enjoyment. Strange, interesting, and slightly gamey. An absurd glimpse into the post-eclectic age. Sugar's only sweetness. Salt is ocean tears. And you were my only weakness. For years and years and years. Are we going? SISG is a broad spectrum show where we cover topics from the worlds of music, live entertainment, film, nostalgia, pop culture, and anything else that comes into our heads, all with an emphasis on the strange and the unusual. It's basically the things that interest us and we hope will interest you too. Now the devil, she must be a dentist with deep jawbreaker eyes. Red rope hair, gumdrop lips, cotton candy thighs. You're my Good evening, everybody, and welcome to Podcast 28, our January show. Happy New Year, everybody. Happy New Year. There are many great events and famous birthdays that have taken place in January. The most important one to us, of course, is our mother's birth that took place on January 16th in 1933. Happy birthday, Mom. Happy birthday. But, of course, there are many others. The day before is Martin Luther King's birthday on the 15th, and both Lewis Carroll and Mozart were born on the 27th. George Washington gave the first State of the Union address on January 4th, and the first Underground Railway service took place in London on January 10th of 1863. That was the same date, but in 1912, that the first boat airplane flew. And that's just naming a few. We'll get around to all of them eventually, but tonight we're concentrating on some others. It's Isaac Asimov's birth on January the 2nd, and in the U.S., that date has become known as National Science Fiction Day. So in that spirit, we're playing a Star Trek Power Records drama for you. Then we have William Shatner reading an Isaac Asimov's Foundation story. It's also Wolfman Jack's birthday on January the 21st. So we're inducting the great man into our Hall of Fame, and of course playing samples of his wonderful voice. Then for no apparent reason, we have some samples of jingles and promos from the odd, weird, and wacky Heller Ferguson Corporation. And a few other things, of course. And so finally, this is Jimmy Sweets. And this is Uncle Frank. Let's get started. I heard all. I heard my buddy singing. And I saw. I saw my buddies leaving in a bag. I certainly did. And I've been here so long. Well, I'm going to tell you something. I'm starting to dry. I'm Cecil Chickadee, the unwanted French fry. You know, not too long ago as I laid in the potato patch up north, I always dreamed of the day that I would be cut up and fired into a golden brown French fry. I dream of the big city with the bright lights. I'd lay in a golden pan under a nice little old light Wait for somebody nice to pick me up and eat me I got stuck out here in this old dilapidated run-down hamburger stand Where heaven knows 
everybody around here seems to like French fries. I've been here about three and a half hours, and this order is too cheap to buy a 20-watt bulb to put under me so I can keep warm. I'm Cecil, the unwanted French fries. You know, I got a cousin who went up to the city, and I can just bet you that he's flying in a nice golden pan along with all my other relatives. He's tanning himself to a golden brown, and people are just... Wondering what's going to become of me, Cecil, the unwanted French fry. You know, it, it's an awful thing when you're all alone. Nobody cares whether you stay or go. I only wish that somebody would come along and order me and take me in their hand and hold me to their teeth and bite into me and say, That French fry's good! I just get thrown out like all the rest. You know, I want you to remember something. If you're ever out and you see an old brown broken up French fry trying to keep itself warm, well, that'll be me, chickadee. Oh, Cecil, order me. Take me home. I sure will be good to you when you bite into me. So I'm going to tell you... One more one. Tonight we're taking a little trip back to the 60s, and we're going there to visit some weird and wonderful radio promos and jingles. Jingles have been part of all of us since childhood. They've been the soundtrack of our lives every bit as much as any other song on the radio and most of us can hum along or sing the words to our favorites. A few of these have gone on to become top 40 hits, like We've Only Just Begun by Paul Williams, or I'd Like to Teach the World to Sing by Cook and Greenway. This musical and auditory advertising has probably been part of humanity from the beginning of civilization. Before mass media, there were medicine shows and barkers using their voices and probably music to sell stuff. Another example are the campaign songs that we talked about in September, which were made for selling politicians. But it wasn't until radio that all this was brought into the world's homes. The first radio ad was broadcast in New York on station WEAF in August of 1922. It was for the Hawthorne Apartments. The first singing advertisement was heard on Christmas Eve 1926 in Minneapolis, St. Paul. It was for General Mills. Since then, there's been a lot of research, hard work, and creativity going into selling us stuff on the radio and then in television. And there are plenty of examples of this, but none of them are more creative or wacky than those produced by the Heller Ferguson Company. Heller Ferguson was a radio and TV ad agency based out of Hollywood, California, between 1958 and 1981. Their most productive period was between 1964 and 1972, and it's from this period that our first offering comes from. It's called Creative Freakout, and it was a promotional record sent out to clients and prospective clients. And as will soon become obvious, it was never meant for the ears of the actual public. 
It was 10 p.m., Sunset Strip. It had been a long day. My name is Johnny Spots, private ear for Heller Corporation, Hollywood, California. Don't know how it happened, but I found myself in the middle of a psychedelic freakout in a parking lot at a Bank of America. A chick with hair down to her bare feet and a 100-foot stare in a 10-foot room screamed into my ear, We shall overcome. I said, Baby, we did. Haven't you heard our advertising story? Mass media, she sneered, and hit me with a 9 by 12 picture of Mario Savio. Don't knock it, kid, I replied. Remember. This brand is your brand. This brand is my brand. From the famous known brand to the X or Y brand. And thanks to this brand, and thanks to that brand, we have the wonders of TV. If it weren't for your brand, and it weren't for my brand, there would be no Lake Show or Gilligan's Island. Holy competition! There'd be no Batman! That's why we keep our television free. This brand is your brand, this brand is my brand. Aren't you glad you live in a cell and buy land? Fight him in the lowland, fight him in the highland. Come join the cause and stamp out pay TV. We have to keep our television free. What do you do, she asked. We solve creative problems for advertisers and agencies, I replied. Forget it. Join the movement, she said. Then she wanted to know if I was for integration. Is she kidding? Ever try to integrate 15 minutes of copy points, mention 12 items, plug the client's name four times, and do it in a 10-second radio commercial? Man, that's integration. Uncle John's Pancake House, German Swedish buttermilk. Uncle John's Pancake House, potato pancakes, smooth as silk. Uncle John's Pancake House, date nut waffles and pecan. Uncle John's Pancake House, French and African banana. It pays to identify with positive causes, and one good pancake house deserves another. If you're hungry. And who isn't? Hey, look at us, the whole gang. Yeah! Here we are, here we are. Yeah! All together at... The International House of Pancakes. Oh, boy. And here comes our lovely waitress. Hello, my name is Gloria. Gloria. Gloria, Gloria, Gloria. Wait a minute, wait a minute, everybody, one at a time. Now, Billy, you're going to have... A waffle. Make mine a Denver omelet. And Cindy wants a chicken pot pie and buckwheat's over there. And a Swiss burger here. And Barbara, what'll you have? A hot fudge sundae. Swell. Okay, now, Freddie, what do you want? Um, I want... Um... Freddie, make up your mind. Come on, Freddie, what do you want? I want a golden little boy who serves you the best on pancakes in the whole wide world and a menu of family dinners too. It's the Pancake House with the bright blue roof, the International House of Pancakes. That's who. Then little often Annie says, you're out of touch, you don't know the issues, you've lost contact with the earth. She didn't know Heller Corporation is the greatest earth show on air. But you can't fly without fuel, so I turned her on with our version of the three bears. Hams, Bergie, and Falstaff. For your 
yourself some freshness Add yourself a hand Hey, Charlie, I think your bottle's off key No, yours is off key Oh, yeah? Well, how's this? Doesn't make it, huh? This bottle tune-up was brought to you by the Falstaff Brewing Corporation of San Jose, California. You're still off, Charlie. Throw out the Bergie. Bergie is so downright lie. Pour out the Bergie. Bergie is always just right. And gleam of a clear crystal stream and ham's beer. For that feeling of freshness. A stroll down the lane moments after the rain and ham's beer. For the feeling of freshness. Fresh from the sky blue waters. Try ham's beer. Buy ham's beer. Charlie, set up two four staffs. Thanks. Hey, don't your horse ever say thanks? Hardly never. This horse opera was brought to you by the Falstaff Brewing Corporation of San Jose, California. Transcribed. Some people say a man is made out of blood, but a man is made out of Bergie and Bud. Bergie and Bud and foam and hops, a brew that's light and a top that pops. You wet 16 tongues, and what do you got? A sponsor that's happy and a wife that is not. Into your mouth and out of your ears. You're pretty stoned when you drink 16 beers. See me coming, better step aside. A lot of men didn't, and a lot of men died. Women have run, and men cry tears. Your breath is pretty strong after 16 beers. You wet 16 tongues, and what do you got? A head that's aching, and a liver that's shot. When 17 comes, put down that glass. Cause when you're out of Schlitz, you're out of gas You take 16 tons, and what do you get? You take 16 tons, and what do you get? You take 16 Then I explained you can't sing a protest song without perfect pitch. We found the most perfect pitch is commercials we're proud of. We grow the biggest corn for the biggest taste. We grow the biggest corn for the biggest taste. We grow the biggest corn for the biggest taste. We grow the biggest corn for the biggest taste. We grow the corn that's bigger. And then we toast it better. Then we put it in a clean white package. Corn nuts, toasted corn, yeah, we love the taste of corn nuts, toasted corn. Corn nuts, toasted corn. 
I asked her where she got her crazy mod threads. She said, just outside of Berkeley, there's a town called San Francisco. A great place to protest. And it's also perfect for buying an individualistic garment that conforms to the idea that all men and women are created to fit into an ideal. Pair of pants. What's that man got? Blue Satkin's nose. He's got a lot. Blue Satkin's clothes. He's an action guy. He knows where to buy. Be that man who knows what goes. Hear him say it. That man wears Blue Satkin's clothes. Sometimes, I added, our style is a few words and much music. Confident people, sure people, likable people who like other people are dial people, dial people, people who like dial Pepsi generation, to the bunch and metrical, to that one-eyed crew who'd rather switch than fight. We will dedicate this jingle to our great society and to those who face that famous Ajax night. We're poor little hucksters with things to sell. Bye. Bye, bye. We're poor little hucksters whose life is hell. Bye, bye, bye. Let us join the Dodge Rebellion and those sweet kids who drink Coke. Let us hop upon our Hondas and just roam. Let us soothe our aching windpipes with a mentholated smoke. And let's not forget the old, old folks at home. We're poor little hucksters with things to sell. Bye, bye, bye. We're poor who push bye, bye, bye. Yes, the magic of commercials and those slogans that we love. Avon calling and use Aaron to be sure. To be sure. We will seek our inspiration. While the voice of choice shall last And thank God we found a treatment Not a cure Hugh Heller was a jingle writer and producer extraordinaire. Alan Ferguson was a composer who later wrote the Barney Miller and Charlie's Angels themes. He was also the musical director for Julie Andrews and Johnny Mathis. Together, they wrote the 1961 Giants fight song and created arrangements for Count Basie and Rosemary Clooney. 
and they also created the Heller Ferguson Corporation. As producer, Heller hired the best talent for all his sessions, the Clark sisters, the Johnny Mann singers, and the Wrecking Crew, to name only a few. He also liked to try new things. In 1968, Heller collaborated with jingle writer, arranger, conductor, and multi-instrument musician Dick Hamilton to put out a pop album. It was called Singers, Talkers, Players, Swingers, and Doers, and it was credited to the group The Hellers. We have two selections from that album now. The first was an adaptation of a jingle from 740 KCBC, San Francisco, that they had made earlier. The second piece, called The Mechanic, had a little help from Robert Moog and his synthesizer. Adjustment, you know. uh-huh, uh-huh. For one thing, it's very hard to start, really. Oh, it is. Yeah. Uh, let me let me get some wrenches okay. and I'll, I'll check it over for you. Okay. I wouldn't bother you today, but uh, I want to go back tomorrow, so I'd appreciate That's all right. it. Uh, listen, uh, will you start her up, please? Okay. Fine. Just let her run. I, I think I hear the trouble. Okay. Thank you. 
Well, um, what do you think? Uh, really, ma'am, I'd, I'd trade her in before you make that trip back to Earth. The rest of the album is just as interesting and just as 60s. We end this tribute with another promotional record from the Heller Ferguson. It also demonstrates their unusual talents in unusual ways, and was also never meant for the general public's consumption. Heller Ferguson, always keeping advertising interesting. You can take away my brand new car and wreck it Take away the phosphates and pollute my family Take away my clothes and leave me naked But don't take away the big D. The big D. La da di da da. La di di. Do do. Oh my. I enjoy the way you dance, boy. Thank you. Did you know watch me twirl? What in hell are you doing? Oh, I'm sorry, sir. But it just made me want to dance and dance and dance. You know, sometimes when I go home after a rough day, I like to put on a kind of a silk house dress and fuzzy pink slippers and just dance crazy. You do that? Yeah. Why don't you call me sometime? Maybe I'll come over and join Well, now, if I get excited, I just, I kind of dance inside myself. Do you? Now, may I show you some demographics, sir? Oh, now, wait, hold on. Now, if them dirty pictures, boy, I, I like them with girls in them, you know what I mean? Demographics. Demographics. And girls are in them, sir. They women. are. Hundreds of thousands of them. You got pictures with hundreds of thousands of women? Well, they're not those kind of are pictures. They're doing all kinds of... They're not. Now, listen to me. WDEE has lots of women between 25 and 49. Do you know what this means, sir? That means they've got a lot of women between 25 and 49. I'm just standing here stoned, now, smashed. Now, that is your buyer. Do you know who that is? Who? That's your buyer. Who? Your consumer. Your spend-the-paycheck lady in the golden got the cashiers. Do you know what I mean? Now, a lot of these women are lonely. And WDEE comes into their little lives and just fills it full of music and all kinds of nummy information about shopping and stuff like that. Now, think that over, sir. I'm just gonna, think it over for a quiet moment. I'm going to think that over for a quiet moment. I surely am. Bring the world a quiet moment. Take it where the real people hear it. It's all right, sir. You needn't be ashamed of tears with me. W-D-E-E. Crying is not sissy. I myself am often affected by intense beauty. Radio 15. Detroit. And I never cried. Too and much. don't hold back. Just let it all out. Shall I let, let it, it all out? hang out, sir? WBBM. The Dallas Dandy, the Fort Worth Wonder. We're on top, all the rest are understandably upset. You bet your bottom buck. Ain't no beginner's luck that got us here. We say it proudly without malice. Whether in Fort Worth or Dallas, Stereo 103, we're the one one hears, KVIL, we've got you by the ears. Firm for
Wizard 100! Wizard! Double, double, boil and bubble, W, then Z, you double. Then you add the magic D, that's the Wizard 100's recipe. Votes says he don't let her kill, phrasing a passersby net Colas up HN 1050 and spied Vic Nobly. HN 1050, the all rock denial, present Whitnors and Dials to mankind. Mazenark, your VC, miss. Legion Arcantane. Miss Arcantane, kill up Colas up HN 1050, spied Vic Nobly. Huh? Zuvik, HN 1050. You couldn't tell by me. San Fun Garset, Klez, another Felomark New York Corsonet file deploy Fonzig Rental, HN 1050. Gelpit, Zek. Azalamora, Kibanites, and Bila, Goska, Nifty. Vodivodek, Vozin, Polakta, Nick, HN1050. Hey, Klevo's my Zakrov. What? You know, my prize for being on the Ziggler. Grelp off, you Libic. As most of you know out there, Power Records were action-packed vinyls for older kids. They were mostly 45s that came with read-along comic books attached. The subjects covered were TV shows and movies, superheroes, monsters, and other drama. Tonight's selection is a Star Trek adventure, The Dinosaur Planet. These are the new voyages of the Starship Enterprise. Its mission, to explore strange new worlds, to seek out new life and new civilizations, to boldly go where no man has gone before. The Starship Enterprise, pride of the Federation of Planets sleek fleet, streaks across the galaxy on its latest adventure. The huge vessel, home for over 400 explorers and scientists, is nearing its destination after many days in the endless reaches of black space. Their assignment? Investigate the mysterious far-off region called the Oblix Solar System. Third planet of Oblix System coming into range, Captain Kirk. Thank you, First Officer Spock. Helmsman Chekhov, please give me visual contact. Yes, Captain. The sight seen by the crew on their view screen is a wondrous one. Spinning slowly before them is a vast rocky planet, scarred a dark red by huge volcanoes that hurl great chunks of colorful lava into the air. The very surface seems to boil with liquid anger. A raw, violent planet. Spock, what does your computer say about this unexplored world? Allow me to check the readout, Captain. Its sun is a yellow dwarf much like Earth's own. Its atmosphere is thin, but breathable and capable of sustaining food and life forms. Is there anything remotely human there now? On this nearly formed planet, 
hardly, Captain. Given its similarity to Earth, I would say life forms would not develop for, oh, approximately 124,426,682.34 years yet. That's the approximate figure, Mr. Spark? Approximately, yes. Would you like me to compute the exact figure? Uh, no, thank you, Mr. Spock. The approximate figure will do just fine. Well, since there's nothing to find on the third planet, I think it should be safe to move on to the sec... Wait a moment, Captain. The computer is sounding a warning. Why, this is incredible. Absolutely fascinating. I could scarcely credit... Ensign Solo, please turn off the alarm. Spock, what is it? Unbelievable as this may seem, Captain, my sensors show that on the far side of this planet, there lives intelligent life. On that ball of fire and ash? Impossible. As impossible as it seems, Mr. Chekhov. My equipment says that it is true. On the other side of this earthquake and volcano-wracked world, there live creatures as complex as you or I. And if that is true, their lives are in deadly danger. No human could survive on this primitive planet for more than a day. Mr. Chekhov, contact Chief Engineer Scott, Medical Officer McCoy, and Security Officers Tanker and Wadsworth immediately. Have them meet Mr. Spock, Mr. Zulu, and myself in the transporter room. There isn't a second to lose. We're beaming down to that planet. The intrepid Captain Kirk, his half-human, half-Vulcan science officer, Mr. Spock, and their cantankerous colleague, Dr. Bones McCoy, quickly decided to find the advanced life forms and bring them up to the ship. Joining them on the dangerous mission was the Enterprise's resident history buff, Mr. Sulu, and two tough, muscular security men. Remember the location I gave you, Scotty. As soon as you hear my signal on that communicator, use the transporter to beam us back up. Got it? Hi, Captain. Everyone ready? Mr. Sulu? Yes, Captain. Wadsworth? Tanker? Ready. All set. Mr. Spock. I am in position and prepared, Captain. Bones. I don't see why we have to check out this flaming world in the first place. It's as barren as a burned-up cornfield. I take it that means you're ready, Doctor. All right, Scotty. Beam us down. Energize. I told you, there's nothing here but red-hot lava and burned-out craters. I think all the heat warped your machine sensors, Spock. Anyone with half a brain can see there's no life here. My machine, as you call it, Doctor, is far more exact than your instincts. And thankfully, it uses more of its brain than you do. Now take it easy, you two. If the ship's computers say that there's life on this planet, I believe it. They've never been wrong before. It's incredible, Captain. This planet is almost an exact replica of Earth during its prehistoric Cretaceous period. Cretaceous? A time of Earth's history when dinosaurs ruled the planet, Captain. More than 130 million years from the year 2000, using pre-stardate time. Incredible. Incredible, maybe, Captain, but I don't like the looks of this place. Other than those foaming, fire-spitting mountains, it seems empty. But I could have sworn I saw some shadows moving near those clouds up there. Spock? According to my portable tricorder, Captain, there is no intelligent life in the nearby area. There, what did I tell you? There's nothing worth seeing here. Spock's dang, blared, flaming computer was all wrong. Look out! Just as the hardy security man shouted his warning, a horrible winged monster screamed out of the sky. It was as big as a baseball field with wings that filled the sky. Its large, burning red eyes steered right through them, and its sharp, pointed beak snapped open and closed like two sharp swords. Tiny, wicked claws on both wings quivered with bloodthirsty want. One moment it soared across the sky. The next it blocked out the sun, moving in a brutal dive and heading right for them. Quick, get behind this rock. Boom, fuck, hurry. Doctor, I believe you said anyone with half a brain could see that there's no life here. Isn't that correct? Uh, that's enough, you two. Is everyone all right? 
Captain, Captain, that was a pterodactyl. A pterro, what all? A pterodactyl, a prehistoric bird. I wish it were a prehistoric pussycat, because here it comes again. Everyone get your laser weapons. Put it to stun power. Fire at will. The beams are hurting us. There seems to be a protective layering of skin that neutralizes our phasers, Captain. Intensify your weapons to their greatest strength. Fire. The beams bounce right off. What was going to stay? Although I do not entirely agree with Mr. Wadsworth's hysterical reaction, Captain, I think it would be wise to find a more secure location for defense. What Spock is trying to say, Jim, is that we had better hide someplace and quick. Crudely translated, Doctor, but roughly adequate. Yes, especially since the pterodactyl seems to be engaging the help of some friends. Captain Kirk looked up to see four more monstrous winged creatures joining its ugly brother. Soon the entire sky was filled with screaming, flapping, bloodthirsty beasts. Quickly, everyone, head for that cave over there. It's our only chance. Keep firing as you retreat. Wadsworth, look where you're going. There's a rock in your path. Wadsworth, don't stop, Jim. Keep running. You'll be killed. Wadsworth is stunned, Bones. I can't leave him there. Wadsworth, are you all right? Being strange. Uzi. Come on, put your arm around my neck. There. Now, come on, man. Move it, or we'll be dinosaur meat. Everyone make it? Is everyone all right? Pterodactyls! A whole fleet of pterodactyls! Unreal! I do believe we have all arrived in one piece, Captain. Our primary concern at this point should be, where do we go from here? A point well taken, Spock. Any suggestions, everyone? I say Scotty should beam us up immediately. I think you should get Scotty to kill those birds with photon torpedoes from the Enterprise. Hey, that's not like you, Wadsworth. You just can't kill living creatures on a whim. It would be criminal. I tend to agree with Ensign Sulu, Captain. Mr. Wadsworth seems to be talking from emotional shock brought on by his previous accident. Please watch the security officer closely, Dr. McCoy. You don't have to tell me, you pointy-eared varmint. I can see he's almost hysterical. All right, I'll just take it easy, all of you. To set the record straight, I agree with Spock and Sulu. We must search further. And since we can't go back out, we'll find another way by following the trail of golden liquid that flows by our feet. By gosh, the captain's right. Look at that golden river here. Why, it goes all the way down into the cavern. The curious crew members begin to follow the stream, which brings them deeper and deeper into the interior of the gas-spouting mountain. Finally, they emerge in a huge cavern as big as a stadium. But what they find there is the most incredible thing of all. Gems. The entire wall is made up of rare gems. Is he right, Spock? Is this cave really made up of rare jewels? According to my tricorder, yes. All around us are solid slabs of ruby, diamond, and emerald. I'm rich. I mean, we're rich. Who would have thought that such a savage planet would hold such riches? Captain Kirk, you must destroy the monsters out there and claim this wealth in the name of the Federation. Easy there, Wadsworth. I agree, Mr. Tanker. May I remind you, Mr. Wadsworth, that the first article of our Federation creed is to respect the rights of all intelligent life forms. But those creatures are just mindless monsters. Mr. Wadsworth, Mr. Spock has said that there is intelligent life on this planet, and before I kill or claim anything, I intend to find it. Just as Captain Kirk turns to follow the Golden River, a new and awful danger appears. Across the cavern, at the mouth of another cave, a long line of massive monsters appear. These new creatures walk on two gigantic legs as big as tree trunks. Their heads are as big as huge boulders, and their teeth are as big and sharp as axes. Tyrannosaurus Rex, the king of the dinosaurs, the most ferocious and powerful flesh-eating creature Earth has ever known. Holy Jehovah Jehoshaphat, I knew I should have stayed on the ship. 
Now will you do it, Captain? Now will you take my suggestion and kill these awful monsters? The brave commander of the Enterprise thought furiously as he watched the immense Tyrannosauruses line the opposite wall of the cave, roaring their angry displeasure. Should he kill the majestic beasts as his security men suggested and mine the rich wealth of the world, or should he risk their own lives on a desperate hunch? We can't wait any longer. We must... Wait a minute, Captain. Mr. Sulu, you are familiar with the Earth version of this mighty dinosaur? This is no time for a history lesson, Spock. We're in danger of our lives. All in good time, Doctor. Mr. Sulu, answer the question. Yes. Those earthly creatures had short arms and small brains, did they not? Yes, they did, Mr. Spock. Not at all like these animals. Why, why these creatures have long arms, almost human-shaped, with three-jointed claws. And their skulls, their skulls are much bigger than the prehistoric Earth Tyrannosaurus. Captain, I submit that these monsters are not monsters at all, but the intelligent life my sensors picked up. That's ridiculous, Spock, even for you. The next thing you'll be telling me is that this golden river we've been following is made of liquid gold. It is. What? What is that? It feels like it's coming from inside my head. It is Captain James T. Kirk of the Starship Enterprise. Both your first officer and medical officer are correct. We, the Tyrannosaurus Rex, are the leading life form on this planet. Up until now, we thought you were pirates, trying to steal our riches and molten gold. But when your Mr. Spock correctly guessed our secret, we knew you had come in peace. Scientific logic, if you please. No guesswork. I also reason that you are masters of mental communication. Yes, Mr. Spock. We speak without speaking, transferring our words directly to your brains. It has been many eons since any other creature understood us. We naturally attack without first trying to communicate. Now that we know you are equal to us, we can make peace between our two kinds. Oh, no, you don't. Talking dinosaurs, rivers of gold, you can't fool me, you lousy monsters. You just want to kill us all and save all these jewels for yourself. Well, I won't let you, you hear? I won't let you. Take this, you lousy murdering monsters. No. You will disequalize the organic interior of the cavern. The entire mountain will be destroyed. Greedy fool! Jim, quick! Call Scotty, beam us up! There's not enough time, Doctor. Our only hope are the dinosaurs. Tanker, you go on ahead. Clear a way for us to the front of the cave. I'll carry Wadsworth on my back. King Dinosaurs, can you... Will you help us? Yes. Do not attempt to escape on foot. You will never make it. Quickly, mount us. Sit upon our backs. We will run you to freedom. Just as enormous hunks of glittering gems crash down all around them, the Enterprise crew scramble onto their new scaly allies. Jim, hurry! The Tyrannosaurus's tremendous legs propel the group through the caverns with blinding speed. Their immense weight shakes the mountain as if it were gripped by the power of a hundred earthquakes. Finally, just as the entire mountainside collapses inward with a numbing thunder, the crew reaches daylight. We made it! We're alive! Well, another solar system explored and another inhabited planet signed up as a member of the Federation. I would say it was a job well done, wouldn't you, Bones? No thanks to Spock's blasted instruments. If they had pinpointed the intelligent dinosaurs on the planet in the first place, we wouldn't have been in such trouble. But anyone with half a brain would have known there was no intelligent life there. Is that not so, Doctor? Well, <clears throat> I think I have some work to do in the sick bay, if you'll excuse me. Ah, going to work on the other half of your brain, eh? <laughs> <laughs>
time again to induct another person into our Hall of Fame. And as we said before, this inductee is another January birthday boy. Drum roll, please. It's Robert Western Smith, better known to us all as Wolfman Jack. I first became aware of the man when I was about four and was taken to Ventura Mall to see a personal appearance of someone named Wolfman Jack. Well, in my mind, I thought I was going to see an actual Wolfman, so you can imagine my disappointment when he turned out to be just a guy in a beard. I had to admit even then, though, that he had a great voice. As time marched on, I learned to love the Wolfman as much as the rest of America. His humor, enthusiasm, and hipster lingo captivated me as it still does today. Wolfman Jack began his career as Daddy Jules for WYOU Virginia in 1960. In 1961, he moved to KCIJ in Shreveport, Louisiana, and it was here that he created his alter ego that was to make him famous. Ramon Sanchez hired him away in 1963 to work for XERF AM in Ciudad Aquena in Mexico. XERF was what was known at the time as Border Buster, broadcasting at five times the watts that were allowed in the U.S. The upshot of this was that all across America, and at night, Europe and the Soviet Union could hear the Wolfman's voice, and the rest was history. Along with radio, Wolfman Jack has appeared on television and in film, and he's emceed many events, like our favorite Knott's Berry Farms Halloween Haunt between 1975 and 1980 a worthy gentleman for our hall. Here now are a few clips highlighting why. XCRB moves up. 9.30 in Los Angeles. This is 50,000 Watt Clear Channel XCRB, Radio North America, Central Studios, Los Angeles, 1090 on your dial.
The big X, the mighty 1090, embossed right on there, baby. Ha! With all this irons on your shirt or your pillowcase. And it's so easy to apply. Now, look at here. This is what else you're going to get you, baby. You're going to get a wealth man jack for governor bumper sticker. So you better get your money in the mail right now. It's only $1. Cash your money order. That's all you got to send in. Yes, $1. Cash your money order. And you're going to get it. Now we're closing it out on December 15 at 12 midnight. So you better get your money in the mail right now. Send $1. Cash your money order to iron on XERB Hollywood, California. Was old Wolfman ready to fight and switch, baby? We got to close it out. That's it for the Wolfman Jack show for tonight. Be back again tomorrow night. Bright eyed and bushy tail, gonna suck it to you tomorrow, baby. I move your picture. I move your picture. From my wall. From my wall, I present. And I replace them. Both large and small. Both large and small. Tucson McCall, baby. And each new day. Each new day. Finds me so blue. Find me so blue. Nothing. Takes the place of you. Just remember, nothing takes the place of you. I read your letter. I read your letter. One by one. One by one. And I still love you. I just want you to know, baby, I still love you. When it's all said and done. And oh, my darling. I'm Because nothing. Because nothing. Nothing. Oh, nothing. Takes the place of you. As the moving finger writes, it says until tomorrow. I'll wait for you. As each teardrop glistens on my letter. Without you, nothing seems the same. Without you, nothing's the same. So I'll wait until you're home. Again, I love you, but I'm all alone. I'm all alone till I see it again tomorrow night, baby. Until tomorrow, I love you so much. I'm so blue. Bye. Because nothing, oh, but nothing takes the place of you.
Oxygen, America's favorite gas. Remember, four out of five doctors surveyed recommend oxygen for their patients who breathe air. Suppose you met a witch. Suppose you met a witch. There's one I know, all willow-gnarled and whiskered head to toe. We drowned her at Ten Foot Bridge uh, last June, I think. But I've often seen her since at twilight time under the willows by the riverbank, skimming the wool-white meadow mist astride her bruma beach. And once, as she flew past with a sudden twist and flick of the stick, she whisked me in head over heels, splashing the scummy water up to my chin. Ooh! Yet there are witless folk will say they don't exist. 
But I was saying, suppose you met a witch up in that murky waste of wood where you play your hide-and-seek. Suppose she pounced out from a bush. She touched you. She clutched you. What would you do? No use in struggling in vain to pinch and pull. She's pinned you down, pitched you into her sack, drawn tight the noose. There's one way of escape, one word you need to know. W-A-N-D. Well, what does that spell? Oh, they learned it years ago. Two children, Roland and Miranda, clapped in a witch's sack and trapped just as you might be. He was a mild and dreamy boy, musical as a lark. In the dark of the jolting sack, he sang. She was quick in all she did, a nimble wit, her brain busy as a hive of bees at honey time. And Grimblegrum, that was the witch's name, jogged them home. This was the usual sort, a candy villa with walls of gingerbread, porch and pillar of barley sugar, she kicked the gate and the licorice-beaded door, undid the sack string and tipped them on the glassy, glacier-minted floor. As Roland fell, his boot struck the crystal paving stones and chipped them. Like an angry rocket, she launched at him. Miranda sprang for the magic wand and pinched it from her pocket. Tip-tap, oh house of cake, be a cloud-reflecting lake, with me and Roland each a swan, gracefully afloat thereon, and deeper than air plummet sounded, grimble-grum, the witch be drowned. T'was done. Look there, do you see two swans a-gliding, serene and cool, upon that heaven-painted pool, over the blue sky, over the floating clouds that shine like snow-white fleeces? Sudden, in burst of bubbles, the witch popped up and shivered the cloud to pieces. I'll gobble you yet, she gulped. But all she gobbled was water as with windmill arms she thrashed and lashed at them. No swimmer, she would have sunk like a boulder below had not a felon crow, black-hearted as his feathers, swooping, dipping, hoisted her by the belt and borne her, boggy, drooping, dripping, home. She'll follow us, no time to lose. Quick, we must fly, Miranda cried. Heavily they rose, far over field and forest, with whining wing, all night through, till dawn of day they flew. Meanwhile, the grimble witch, now dry, had put on her seven-league boots and, do or die, seven mile at a step came galloping, gulping, gobble you yet, I'll gobble you yet. The swans heard her cackle and a thudding where she stepped. Down by a screen of trees they swept, down to the lonely roadside out of view. I'll change myself to a rose of crimson hue set in a prickly hedge, Miranda said. And Roland, as for you, you'll be a piper and the magic wand your flute. Not a second too soon, for the witch's boot touched ground beside them, and she croaked, Oh, glorious, glorious rose, I have sought you from afar. How I wonder what you are. You may mock me from on high, but I'm the spider, you're the fly. Ah! <laughs> and then she gaped at that glorious and goriest of roses, with the greediest of eyes and the nosiest of noses. Again she spoke. Good piper, this rose, how dainty it would look if I stuck it in my cloak. May I pluck it? Good lady, you may, 
and I'll play to you the while. And Roland smiled, for his was a magic flute, each golden note entrancing, none could listen without dancing. One note one, she spun like a top. Two notes two, she hopped and couldn't stop. Three notes three, and into that thorny, thistly tree, with a hop, skip, and a jump went she. Tootle toot, sang the flute, and up went her boot, and down again soon to the ten-tibby tune. Every thorn and twig did dance to the jig, and the witch willy-nilly, each prickle and pin as it skewered her in, was driving her silly. Hi-ho, shrieked she, and tickle me thistle, and prickle me dee. And battered she was as she trotted and tripped, and her clothes were all torn and tattered and ripped, till at last all mingled and mangled, her right leg entangled, her left leg right-angled, firm as a prisoner pinned to the mast, she stuck fast. Silence, not a sound, as Roland wiped the sweat from his brow, then gently with his pipe he touched the rose, out leapt Miranda to the ground, hand in hand, chuckling through the wild wood, away home they ran. That same evening, a cowman passing by paused by a roadside bush to cut a switch. He heard a cry, turning, saw in a hedge nearby a prickly witch who screamed and yelled and hissed at him and spat. So, he put a match to the hedge, and that was that. You are being stalked by the most savage, carnivorous ground beast in the world. Anyone is fair game for Grizzly. Over 2,000 pounds and 18 feet of gut-crunching, man-eating terror. The deadliest jaws on land belong to Grizzly. Rated PG. Parental guidance suggested. Arizona. Born in the 11,988th year of the Galactic Era, died 12,069. The dates are more commonly given in terms of the current foundational era as 79 to the year 1 FE. Born to middle-class parents on Helicon, Arctura sector, where his father, a legend of doubtful authenticity, was a tobacco grower in the hydroponic plants of the planet, he early showed amazing ability in mathematics. Anecdotes concerning his ability are innumerable. His contributions were in the field of psychohistory. Seldom found a field little more than a set of vague axioms. He left it a profound statistical science. The best existing authority we have for the details of his life is the biography written by Gal Dornick, who, as a young man, met Selden. His name was Gal Dornick, and he was just a country boy who had never seen Krantor before. That is, not in real life. He had seen it many times on the hyper-video, and occasionally in tremendous three-dimensional newscasts covering an imperial coronation or the opening of the Galactic Council. Even though he had lived all his life on the world of Synax, which circled a star at the edges of the Blue Drift, he was not cut off from civilization, you see. At that time, no place in the galaxy was. There were nearly 25 million inhabited planets in the galaxy then, and not one but owed allegiance to the Empire whose seat was on Trantor. It was the last half-century in which that could be said. To Gaul, this trip was the undoubted climax of his young scholarly life. He had been in space before, so that the trip as a voyage, and nothing more, meant little to him.
To be sure, he had traveled previously only as far as Synax's only satellite in order to get the data on the mechanics of meteor driftage, which he needed for his dissertation, but space travel was all one whether one traveled a half a million miles or as many light years. He had steeled himself just a little for the jump through hyperspace, a phenomenon one did not experience in simple interplanetary trips. The jump remained and would probably remain forever the only practical method of traveling between the stars. Travel through ordinary space could proceed at no rate more rapid than that of ordinary light, a bit of scientific knowledge that belonged among the few items known since the forgotten dawn of human history, and that would have meant years of travel between even the nearest of inhabited systems. Through hyperspace, that unimaginable region that was neither space nor time, matter nor energy, something nor nothing, one could traverse the length of the galaxy in the interval between the two neighboring instants of time. Gaul had waited for the first of those jumps with a little dread curled gently in his stomach, and it ended in nothing more than a trifling jar, a little internal kick, which ceased an instant before he could be sure he had felt it. That was all. And after that, there was only the ship, large and glistening, the cool production of twelve thousand years of imperial progress, and himself, with his doctorate in mathematics, freshly obtained, and an invitation from the great Harry Selden to come to Trantor and join the vast and somewhat mysterious Selden project. What Gaul was waiting for after the disappointment of the jump was at first sight of Trantor. He haunted the view room. The steel shutter lids were rolled back at announced times, and he was always there, watching the hard brilliance of the stars, enjoying the incredible hazy swarm of star cluster, like a giant conglomeration of fireflies caught in mid-motion and stilled forever. At one time there was the cold, blue-white smoke of a gaseous nebula within five light years of the ship, spreading over the window like distant milk, filling the room with an icy tinge, and disappearing out of sight two hours later, after another jump. The first sight of Trantor's sun was that of a hard white speck, all but lost in a myriad such, unrecognizable only because it was pointed out by the ship's guide. The stars were thick here at the galactic center, but with each jump it shone more brightly, drowning out the rest, paling them and thinning them out. An officer came through and said, View room will be closed for the remainder of the trip. Prepare for landing. Gaul had followed after, clutching at the sleeve of the white uniform of the spaceship and son of the Empire on it. He said, Would it be possible to let me stay? I would like to see Trantor. The officer smiled, and Gaul flushed a bit. It occurred to him that he spoke with a provincial accent. The officer said, We'll be landing on Tranto by morning. I mean, I want to see it from space. Oh, sorry, my boy. If this were a space yacht, we might manage it, but we're spinning down sunside. You wouldn't want to be blinded, burnt, and radiation scarred all at the same time, would you? Gaul started to walk away. The officer called after him. Tranto would only be a gray blur anyway, kid. Why don't you take a space tour once you hit Trantor? They're cheap. Gaul looked back. Th th thank you very much. It was childish to feel disappointed, but childishness comes almost as naturally to a man as to a child and there was a lump in Gaul's throat. He had never seen Trantor spread out in all its incredibility as large as life, and he hadn't expected to have to wait longer. The ship landed in a medley of noises. There was the far-off hiss of the atmosphere cutting and sliding past the metal of the ship. There was the steady drone of the conditioners fighting the heat of friction, and the slower rumble of the engines enforcing deceleration. There was the human sound of men and women gathering in the debarkation rooms, and the grind of the hoists lifting baggage, mail and freight to the long axis of the ship, from which they would be later removed along to the unloading platform. Gaul felt the slight jar that indicated the ship no longer had an independent motion of its own. Ship's gravity had been giving way to planetary gravity for hours. 
Thousands of passengers had been sitting patiently in the debarkation rooms which swung easily on yielding force fields to accommodate its orientation to the changing direction of the gravitational forces. Now they were crawling down curving ramps to the large, yawning locks. Gall's baggage was minor. He stood at a desk as it was quickly and expertly taken apart and put together again. His visa was inspected and stamped. He himself paid no attention. This was Trantor. The air seemed a little thicker here, the gravity a bit greater than on his home planet of Synax, but he would get used to that. He wondered if he would get used to immensity. Deparkation building was tremendous. The roof was almost lost in the heights. Gaul could almost imagine that clouds could form beneath its immensity. He could see no opposite wall, just men and desks and converging floor till it faded out in haze. The man at the desk was speaking again. He sounded annoyed. He said, Move on, uh, Dornick. And he had to open the visa look again before he remembered the name. Gaul said, Where? Where? The man at the desk jerked a thumb. Taxis to the right and third left. Gaul moved, seeing the glowing twists of air suspended high in nothingness and reading, Taxis to all points. A figure detached itself from anonymity and stopped at the desk as Gaul left. The man at the desk looked up and nodded briefly. The figure nodded in return and followed the young immigrant. He was in time to hear Gaul's destination. Gaul found himself hard against a railing. The small sign said, Supervisor. The man to whom the sign referred did not look up. He said, Where to? Gaul wasn't sure. But even a few seconds' hesitation meant men queuing in line behind him. The supervisor looked up. Where to? Gaul's funds were low, but there was only this one night, and then he would have a job. He tried to sound nonchalant. Um, a good hotel, please? The supervisor was unimpressed. They're all good. Name one. Gaul said desperately. The nearest one, please. The supervisor touched a button. A thin line of light formed along the floor, twisting among others which brightened and dimmed in different colors and shades. A ticket was shoved into Gaul's hand. It glowed faintly. The supervisor said, One point twelve. Gaul fumbled for the coins. He said, Where do I go? Follow the light. The ticket will keep glowing as long as you're pointed in the right direction. Gaul looked up and began walking. There were hundreds creeping along the vast floor, following their individual trails, sifting and straining themselves through intersection points to arrive at their respective destinations. His own trail ended. A man in glaring blue and yellow uniform, shining and new in unstainable plaster textile, reached for his two bags. Direct line to the Luxor, he said. The man who followed Gaul heard that. He also heard Gaul say, Fine, and watched him enter the blunt-nosed vehicle. The taxi lifted straight up. Gaul stared out the curved, transparent window, marveling at the sensation of air flight within an enclosed structure and clutching instinctively at the back of the driver's seat. The vastness contracted, and the people became ants in random distribution. The scene contracted further and began to slide backward. There was a wall ahead. It began high in the air and extended upwards out of sight. It was riddled with holes that were the mouths of tunnels. Gaul's taxi moved toward one of them plunged into it. For a moment, Gaul wondered idly how his driver would pick one out among so many. There was now only blackness, with nothing but past flashing of a colored signal light to relieve the gloom. The air was full of a rushing sound. Gaul leaned forward against deceleration then, and the taxi popped out of the tunnel and descended to ground level once more. Alexar Hotel, said the driver unnecessarily. 
He helped the gull with his baggage, accepted a tenth credit tip with a businesslike air, picked up a waiting passenger, and was rising again. In all this, from the moment of debarkation, there had been no glimpse of sky. Brando. Climax. As the center of the imperial government for unbroken hundreds of generations, and located as it was in the central regions of the galaxy, among the most densely populated and industrially advanced worlds of the system, it could scarcely help being the densest and richest plot of humanity the race had ever seen. Its urbanization, progressing steadily, had finally reached the ultimate. All the land surface of Trandor, 75 million square miles in extent, was a single city. The population, at its height, was well in excess of 40 billion. This enormous population was devoted almost entirely to the administrative necessities of empire, and found themselves all too few for the complications of the task. It is to be remembered that the impossibility of proper administration of the galactic empire under the uninspired leadership of the later emperors was a considerable factor involved. Daily, fleets of ships in tens of thousands brought the produce of twenty agricultural worlds to the dinner tables of Trantor, the outer worlds for food, and indeed for all necessities of life, made Trantor increasingly vulnerable to conquest by siege. In the last millennium of the Empire, the monotonously numerous revolts made emperor after emperor conscious of this, and imperial policy became little more than the protection of Trantor. Gaul was not certain whether the sun shone, or for that matter, whether it was day or night. He was ashamed to ask. All the planets seemed to live beneath metal. The meal of which he had just partaken had been labeled luncheon, but there were many planets which lived a standard time scale that took no account of the perhaps inconvenient alternations of day and night. The rate of planetary turnings differed, and he did not know that of Trantor. At first he had eagerly followed the signs to the sunroom, and found it but a chamber for basking in artificial radiation. He lingered a moment or two, then returned to the Luxor's main lobby. He said to the room clerk, Where can I buy a ticket for a planetary tour? Right here. When will it start? He just missed it. Another one tomorrow. Buy a ticket now and reserve a place for you. Oh. Tomorrow would be too late. He would have... There wouldn't be an observation tower or something? I mean, in the open air? Sure. Sell you a ticket for that if you want. Better let me check if it's raining or not. He closed a contact at his elbow and read the flowing letters that raced across a frosted screen. Gall read with him. The room clerk said, Good weather. Come to think of it, I do believe it's the dry season now. He added conversationally, I don't bother with the outside myself. The last time I was in the open was three years ago. You see it once, you know. That's all there is to it. Here's your ticket. Special elevator in the rear. It's marked to the tower. Just take it. The elevator was of the new sort that ran by gravitic repulsion. Gaul entered and the others flowed in behind him. The operator closed a contact. For a moment, Gaul felt suspended in space as gravity switched to zero, and then he had weight again in small measure as the elevator accelerated upward. Deceleration followed and his feet left the floor. He squawked against his will. The operator called out, Tuck your feet under the railings. Can't you read the sign? The others had done so. They were smiling at him as he madly and vainly tried to clamber back down the wall. Their shoes pressed upward against the chromium of the railings that stretched across the floor in parallel set two feet apart. He had noticed those railings on entering and had ignored them. Then a hand reached out and pulled him down. He gasped his thanks as the elevator came to a halt. He stepped out upon an open terrace bathed in a white brilliance that hurt his eyes. The man whose helping hand he had just now been the recipient of was immediately behind him. The man said kindly, Plenty of seats. Gall closed his mouth. He had been gaping and said, It, it certainly seems so. 
He started for them automatically, then stopped. He said, if you, if you don't mind, I'll just stop a moment at the railing. I want to look a bit. The man waved him on good-naturedly, and Gaul leaned out over the shoulder-high railing and bathed himself in all the panorama. He could not see the ground. It was lost in the ever-increasing complexities of man-made structures. He could see no horizon other than that of metal against sky, stretching out to almost uniform grayness, and he knew it was so over all the land surface of the planet. There was scarcely any motion to be seen. A few pleasure craft lazed against the sky, but all the busy traffic of billions of men were going on, he knew, beneath the metal skin of the world. There was no green to be seen, no green, no soil, no life other than man. Somewhere on the world, he realized vaguely, was the Emperor's Palace set amid one hundred square miles of natural soil, green with trees, rainbowed with flowers. It was a small island amid an ocean of steel, but it wasn't visible from where he stood. It might be ten thousand miles away, he did not know. Before very long, he must have his tour. <sighs> he sighed noisily and realized finally that he was on Trantor at last, on the planet which was the center of all the galaxy and the kernel of the human race. He saw none of its weakness. He saw no ships of food landing. He was not aware of a jugular vein delicately connecting the forty billion of Trantor with the rest of the galaxy. He was conscious only of the mightiest deed of man, the complete and almost contemptuously final conquest of a world. He came away a little blank-eyed. His friend of the elevator was indicating a seat next to himself, and Gaul took it. The man smiled. My name is Gerald. First time on Trantor? Ah, yes, Mr. Gerald. Thought so. Uh, Gerald's my first name. Trantor gets you if you've got the poetic temperament. Trantorians never come up here, though. They don't like it. Gives them nerves. Nerves? My name's Gaul, by the way. Why should it give them nerves? It's, it's glorious. A subject of matter of opinion, Gaul. If you're born in a cubicle and grow up in a corridor and work in a cell and vacation in a crowded sunroom, then coming up into the open with nothing but sky over you might give you a nervous breakdown. They make children come up here once a year after they're five. I don't know if it does any good. They, they don't get enough of it, really. And the first few times, they scream themselves into hysteria. They ought to start as soon as they're weaned and have the trip once a week, he went on. Of course, it, it doesn't really matter. What if they never come out at all? They're happy down there as they run the empire. How high up do you think we are? He said, half a mile, and wondered if that sounded naive. It must have, for Gerald chuckled a little. He said, <laughs> no, just 500 feet. What? But the elevator took up a... I know, but uh, most of the time it was just getting up to ground level. Trantor is tunneled over a mile down. It's like an iceberg. Nine-tenths of it is out of sight. It even works itself out a few miles into sub-ocean soil at the shorelines. In fact, we're down so low we can make use of the temperature difference between ground level and a couple of miles under to supply us with all the energy we need. Did you know that? No, I thought you used atomic generators. Dead ones, but this is cheaper. <laughs> I, I imagine so. What do you think of it all? For a moment, the man's good nature evaporated into shrewdness. He looked almost sly. Gaul fumbled. Glorious, he said again. Here on vacation, traveling, sightseeing? Not exactly. At least I have always wanted to visit Tranter, but I came here primarily for a job. Oh. Gaul felt obliged to explain further. With um, Dr. Selden's project at the University of Trantor. Raven Selden? 
Why, no, I, I meant uh, Harry Selden, the psychohistorian Selden. I, I, I don't know of any Raven Selden. Uh, Harry's the one I mean. They call him Raven. Slang, you know. He keeps predicting disaster. He does? God was genuinely astonished. Ah, oh, surely you must know. Gerald was not smiling. You're coming to work for him, aren't you? Well, yes, I'm a mathematician. Why does he predict disaster? What, what, what kind of disaster? Oh, what kind do you think? I'm, I'm afraid I, I wouldn't have the least idea. I've read the papers Dr. Selden and his group have published. They're on mathematical theory. Yeah, ones they publish. Gall felt annoyed. He said, I think I'll go to my room now. I'm very pleased to have met you. Gerald waved his arm indifferently in farewell. Gall found a man waiting for him in his room. For a moment he was too startled to put into words the inevitable what are you doing here that came to his lips. The man rose. He was old, almost bald. He walked with a limp. But his eyes were very bright and blue. He said, I am Harry Seldon. An instant before Gall's befuddled brain placed the face alongside the memory of the many times he had seen it in pictures. Psychohistory. Non mathematical nonsense has defined psychohistory to be that branch of mathematics which deals with the reactions of human conglomerates to fixed social and economic stimuli. All these definitions is the assumption that the human conglomerate being dealt with is sufficiently large for valid statistical treatment. The necessary size of such a conglomerate may be determined by Selden's first theorem, which assumes that the human conglomerate be itself unaware of psychohistoric analysis in order that its reactions be truly random. The basis of all valid psychohistory lies in the development of the Selden functions which exhibit properties congruent to those of such social and economic forces as... Good afternoon, sir, said Dahl. You didn't think we were to meet before tomorrow? Ordinarily, we would not have. It is just that if we are to use your services, we must work quickly. It grows continually more difficult to obtain recruits. I, I don't understand, sir. You were talking to a man on the observation tower, were you not? Yes, his name is Gerald. I know no more about him. His name is nothing. He's an agent of the Commission of Public Safety. He followed you from the spaceport. But why? I'm afraid I'm very confused. Did the man on the tower say nothing about me? Gall hesitated. He referred to you as Raven Selden. Did he say why? He said you predict disaster. I do. What does Tranto mean to you? Everyone seemed to be asking his opinion of Tranto. Gall felt incapable of response beyond the bare word. <laughs> Glorious! You say that without thinking. What a psychohistory. I haven't thought of applying it to the problem. Before you are done with me, young man, you will learn to apply psychohistory into all problems as a matter of course. Observe. Selden removed his calculator pad from his pouch at his belt. Men said he kept one beneath his pillow for use in moments of wakefulness. Its gray, glossy finish was slightly worn by use. Selden's nimble fingers, spotted now with age, played along the hard plastic that rimmed it. 
red symbols glowed out of the gray. He said, that represents the condition of the Empire at present. He waited. Gaul said finally, Surely this is not a complete representation. No, not complete, said Selden. I am glad you do not accept my word blindly. However, this is an approximation which will serve to demonstrate the proposition. Will you accept that? It's subject to my later verification of the derivation of the function, yes? Gaul was carefully avoiding a possible trap. Good. Add to this the known probability of imperial assassination, vice-regal revolt, the contemporary recurrence of periods of economic depression, the declining rate of planetary explorations. He proceeded. As each item was mentioned, new symbols sprang to life at his touch and melted into the basic function which expanded and changed. Gaul stopped him only once. I don't see the validity of that set transformation. Selden repeated it more slowly. Gaul said, But... That is done by way of a forbidden socio-operation. Good. You're quick, but not yet quick enough. It is not forbidden in this connection. Let me do it by expansions. The procedure was much longer, and at its end, Gaul said humbly, Yes, I see that now. Finally, Selden stopped. This is Trantor five centuries from now. How do you interpret that? Huh? He put his head to one side and waited. Gaul said unbelievingly, Total destruction. But, but that's impossible. Trantor has never been... Selden was filled with the intense excitement of a man whose body only had grown old. Come, come, you saw how the result was arrived. That put it into words. Forget the symbolism for a moment. Gaul said, As Trantor becomes more specialized, it becomes more vulnerable less able to defend itself. Further, as it becomes more and more, the administrative center of empire becomes a greater prize. As the imperial succession becomes more and more uncertain, and the feuds among the great families more rampant, social responsibility disappears. Enough. And what of the numerical probability of total destruction within five centuries? I, I couldn't tell. Surely you can perform field differentiation. Gaul felt himself under pressure. He was not offered the calculator pad. It was held a foot from his eyes. He calculated furiously and felt his forehead grow slick with sweat. He said, About eighty-five percent. Not bad, said Selden, thrusting out a lower lip. But not good. The actual figure is ninety-two point five percent. Gaul said, And so you are called Raven Selden. I have seen none of this in journals. But of course not. This is unprintable. Do you suppose the Imperium could expose its shakiness in this manner? That is a very simple demonstration in psychohistory, but some of our results have leaked out among the aristocracy. That's bad. Not necessarily. All is taken into account. But that is why I'm being investigated? Yes. Everything about my project is being investigated. Are you in danger, sir? Oh, yes. There is a probability of 1.7% that I will be executed. But, of course, that will not stop the project. We have taken that into account as well. Well, never mind. You will meet me, I suppose, at the university tomorrow. I will, said Gaul. Commission of Public Safety. Aristocratic Coterie rose to power after the assassination of Cleon I, last of the Enthons. 
In the main, they formed an element of order during the centuries of instability and uncertainty in the Imperium, usually under the control of the great families of the Chens and the Daivars. It degenerated eventually into a blind mood as a power in the state until after the accession of the last strong emperor, Cleon II. The first chief commissioner, Klein can be traced to the trial of Harry Selden two years before the beginning of the foundational era. That trial is described in Gaul Dornick's life. Gaul did not carry out his promise. He was awakened the next morning by a muted buzzer. He answered it, and the voice of the desk clerk, as muted, polite, and deprecating as it might be, informed him that he was under detention at the orders of the commission for public safety. Gaul sprang to the door and found it would no longer open. He could only dress and wait. They came for him and took him elsewhere, but it was still detention. They asked him questions most politely. It was all very civilized. He explained that he was a provincial of Synax, that he attended such and such schools, had obtained a doctor of mathematics degree on such and such a date. He had applied for a position on Dr. Selden's staff, had been accepted. Over and over again he gave these details, and over and over again they returned to the question of his joining the Selden project. How had he heard of it? What were to be his duties? What secret instructions had he received? What was it all about? He answered that he did not know. He had no secret instructions. He was a scholar and a mathematician. He had no interest in politics. And finally, the gentle inquisitor asked, When will Franto be destroyed? Gaul faltered. I, I could not say of my own knowledge. Could you say of anyone's? How can I speak for another? He felt warm, overwarm. The inquisitor said, Has anyone told you of such destruction? Set a date. And as the young man hesitated, he went on. You have been followed, Doctor. We were at the airport when you arrived, on the observation tower when you waited for your appointment. Of course, we were able to overhear your conversation with Dr. Seldon. Gaul said. Then you know his views on the matter. Perhaps, but we would like to hear them from you. He is of the opinion that Tranter would be destroyed within five centuries. He proved it um, mathematically? Yes, he did, defiantly. You maintain the um, mathematics to be valid, I suppose? If Dr. Selden vouches for it, it is valid. Then we will return. Wait. I have a right to a lawyer. I demand my rights as an imperial citizen. You shall have them. And he did. It was a tall man that eventually entered, a man whose face seemed all vertical lines and so thin that one could wonder whether there was room for a smile. Gaul looked up. He felt disheveled and wilted. So much had happened. Yet he had been on Tranter not more than thirty hours. The man said, I'm Lors Avakim. Dr. Selden has directed me to represent you. Is that so? Well, then look here. I demand an instant appeal to the Emperor. I'm being held without cause. I'm innocent of anything, of anything. He slashed his hands outward, palms down. You've got to arrange a hearing with the Emperor instantly. Avakim was carefully emptying the contents of a flat folder onto the floor. If Gaul had had the stomach for it, he might have recognized Selamet legal forms, metal, thin, and tape-like, adapted for insertion within the smallness of a personal capsule. He might have recognized a pocket recorder. Avakim paid no attention to Gaul's outburst, finally looked up. He said, The Commission will, of course, have a spy beam on our conversation. This is against the law, but they will use one nevertheless. Gaul ground his teeth. However, said Avakim, seating himself deliberately, the recorder I have on the table, which is a perfectly ordinary recorder to all appearances and performs its duties well, has the additional property of completely blanketing the spy beam. This is something they will not find out at once. Then can I speak? Of course. 
Then I want a hearing with the Emperor. Abakim smiled frostily, and it turned out there was room for it on his thin face after all. His cheeks wrinkled to make the room. He said, You are from the provinces. I am, nonetheless, an imperial citizen, as good a one as you or any of this commission of public safety. No doubt, no doubt. It is merely that as a provincial you do not understand life on Trantor as it is. There are no hearings before the emperor. To whom else would one appeal from this commission? Is there other procedure? None. There is no recourse in a practical sense. Legalistically, you may appeal to the emperor, but you would get no hearing. The emperor today is not the emperor of the Etan dynasty, you know. Trantor, I'm afraid, is in the hands of the aristocratic families, members of which compose the commission of public safety. This is a development which is well predicted by psychohistory. Cole said, Indeed. In that case, if Dr. Selden can predict the history of Trantor 500 years into the future, he can predict it 1,500 years into the future. Let it be 15,000. Why couldn't he yesterday have predicted the events of this morning and warned me? No, no, I'm, I'm sorry. Gaul sat down and rested his head in one sweating palm. I quite understand that psychohistory is a statistical science and cannot predict the future of a single man with any accuracy. You'll understand that I am upset. But you're wrong. Dr. Selden was of the opinion that you would be arrested this morning. What? It is unfortunate, but true. The commission has been more and more hostile to his activities. New members joining the group have been interfered with to an increasing extent. The graphs show that for our purposes, the matter might best be brought to a climax now. The commission of itself was moving somewhat slowly, so Dr. Selden visited you yesterday for the purpose of forcing a hand. No other reason. Gaul caught his breath. I resent, please. It was necessary. You were not picked for any personal reasons. You must realize that Dr. Selden's plans, which are laid out with the developed mathematics of over 18 years, include all eventualities with significant probabilities. This is one of them. I have been sent here for no other purpose than to assure you that you need not fear. It will end well, almost certainly for the project, and with reasonable probability for you. What? What are the figures? demanded Gaul. For the project, over 99.9%. .9%. And for myself? I am instructed that the probability is 77.2%. Then I've got a better than one chance in five of being sentenced to prison or to death. The last is under 1%. Indeed, calculations upon one man mean nothing. You send Dr. Selden to me. Unfortunately, I cannot. Dr. Selden is himself arrested. The door was thrown open before the rising gull could do no more than utter the beginning of a cry. A guard entered, walked to the table, picked up the recorder, looked upon all sides of it, and put it in his pocket. Abukum said quietly, I will need that instrument. We will supply you with one counselor that does not cast a static field. My interview is done in that case. Gaul watched him leave, and was alone. The trial, Gaul supposed it to be one, though it bore little resemblance legalistically to the elaborate trial techniques Gaul had read of, had not lasted long. It was in its third day, yet already Gaul could no longer stretch his memory back far enough to embrace its beginning. He himself had been but little pecked at. The heavy guns were trained on Dr. Selden himself. Harry Selden, however, sat there unperturbed.
To Gaul, he was the only spot of stability remaining in the world. The audience was small and drawn exclusively from among the barons of the empire. Press and public were excluded, and it was doubtful that any significant number of outsiders even knew that a trial of Selden was being conducted. The atmosphere was one of unrelieved hostility toward the defendants. Five of the Commission of Public Safety sat behind the raised desk. They wore scarlet and gold uniforms and the shining, close-fitting plastic caps that were the sign of their judicial function. In the center was the Chief Commissioner, Linj Chen. Gaul had never before seen so great a lord, and he watched him with fascination. Chen, throughout the trial, rarely said a word. He made it quite clear that much speech was beneath his dignity. The commission's advocate consulted his notes, and the examination continued with Selden still on the stand. Let's see, uh, Dr. Selden, <clears throat> how many men are now engaged in the project which you are head? Fifty mathematicians. Including Dr. Gaul Dornick. Dr. Dornick is the 51st. Oh, then we have 51, then. Search your memory, Dr. Selden. Perhaps there are 52 or 53, or perhaps even more. Dr. Dornick has not yet formally joined my organization. When he does, the membership will be 51. It is now 50, as I have said. Not perhaps nearly a 100,000? Mathematicians, no. I did not say mathematicians. Are there a 100,000 in all capacities? In all capacities, your figure may be correct. Maybe I say it is. I say that the men in your project number 98,572. I believe you're counting women and children. 98,572 individuals is the intent of my statement. There is no need to quibble. I accept the figures. Let us drop that for the moment, then, and take up another matter which we have already discussed some length. Would you repeat, Dr. Selden, your thoughts concerning the future of Trantor? I have said, and I say again, that Trantor will lie in ruins within the next five centuries. You do not consider your statement a disloyal one? No, sir. Scientific truth is beyond loyalty and disloyalty. You are sure that your statement represents scientific truth? I am. On what basis? On the basis of the mathematics of psychohistory. Can you prove that this mathematics is valid? Only to another mathematician. Then your claim is that your truth is of so esoteric a nature that it is beyond the understanding of a plain man. It seems to me the truth should be clearer than that, less mysterious, more open to the mind. It presents no difficulties to some minds. The physics of energy transfer, which we know as thermodynamics, has been clear and true through all the history of man since the mythical ages. Yet there may be people present who would find it impossible to design a power engine. People of high intelligence, too. I doubt if the learned commissioners. At this point, one of the commissioners leaned toward the advocate. His words were not heard, but the hissing of the voice carried a certain asperity. The advocate flushed and interrupted Selden. We are not here to listen to speeches, Dr. Selden. Let us assume that you have made your point. Let me suggest to you that your predictions of disaster might be intended to destroy public confidence in the imperial government for purposes of your own. That is not so. Let me suggest that you intend to claim that a period of time preceding the so-called ruin of Trantor will be filled with unrest of various types. That is correct and that by the mere prediction thereof you hope to bring it about and to have then an army of a hundred thousand available. In the first place, that is not so, and if it were, investigation will show you that barely ten thousand are men of military age, and none of these has training in arms. Are you acting as an agent for another? 
I am not in the pay of any man, Mr. Advocate. You are entirely disinterested. You are serving science. I am. Then let us see how. Can the future be changed, Dr. Selden? Obviously. This courtroom may explode in the next few hours, or it may not. If it did, the future would undoubtedly be changed in some minor respects. You quibble, Dr. Selden. Can the overall history of the human race be changed? Yes. Easily? No. With great difficulty. Why? The psychohistoric trend of a planet full of people contains a huge inertia. To be changed, it must be met with something possessing a similar inertia. Either as many people must be concerned, or if a number of people be relatively small, enormous time for change must be allowed. Do you understand? I think I do. Trantor need not be ruined if a great many people decide to act so that it will not. That is right. As many as a hundred thousand people? No, sir, that's far too few. You are sure? Consider that Trantor has a population of over forty billions. Consider further that the trend leading to ruin does not belong to Trantor alone, but to the Empire as a whole. And the Empire contains nearly a quintillion human beings. I see. Then perhaps a hundred thousand people can change the trend if they and their descendants labor for five hundred years. I'm afraid not. Five hundred years is too short a time. Ah, in that case, Dr. Selden, we are left with this deduction to be made from your statements. You have gathered one hundred thousand people within the confines of your project. These are insufficient to change the history of Trantor within five hundred years. In other words, they cannot prevent the destruction of Trantor no matter what they do. You are unfortunately correct. And on the other hand, your hundred thousand are intended for no illegal purpose. Exactly. In that case, Dr. Selden, now attend, sir, most carefully, for we want a considered answer. What is the purpose of your hundred thousand? The advocate's voice had grown strident. He had sprung a strap, backed Selden into a corner, driven him astutely from any possibility of answering. There was a rising buzz of conversation at that, which swept the ranks of the peers in the audience and invaded even the row of commissioners. They swayed toward one another in their scarlet and gold, only the chief remaining uncorrupted. Harry Selden remained unmoved. He waited for the battle to evaporate, to minimize the effects of that destruction. And exactly what do you mean by that? The explanation is simple. The coming destruction of Trantor is not an event in itself, isolated in the scheme of human development. It will be the climax to an intricate drama which was begun centuries ago and which is accelerating in pace continuously, I refer, gentlemen, to the developing decline and fall of the Galactic Empire. The buzz now became a dull roar. The advocate, unheeded, was yelling, You are openly declaring that— and stopped because the cries of treason from the audience showed that the point had been made without any hammering. Slowly, the chief commissioner raised his gavel once and let it drop. The sound was that of a mellow gong. When the reverberation ceased, the gavel of the audience also did. The advocate took a deep breath. Do you realize, Dr. Selden, that you are speaking of an empire that has stood for twelve thousand years, through all the vicissitudes of the generations, which has behind it the good wishes and love of a quadrillion human beings? I am aware of both the present status and the past history of the empire. 
Without this respect, I must claim a far better knowledge of it than any in this room. And you predict its ruin? It is a prediction which is made by mathematics. I pass no moral judgments. Personally, I regret the prospect. Even if the empire were admitted to be a bad thing, an admission I do not make, the state of anarchy which would follow its fall would be worse. It is that state of anarchy which my project is pledged to fight. The fall of the empire, gentlemen, is a massive thing, however, and not easily fought. It is dictated by a rising bureaucracy, receding initiative, the freezing of caste, a damning of curiosity, a hundred other factors. It has been going on, as I have said, for centuries, and it is too majestic and massive a movement to stop. Is it not obvious to anyone that the empire is as strong as it ever was? The appearance of strength is all about you. It would seem to last forever. However, Mr. Advocate, the rotten tree trunk, until the very moment when the storm blast breaks it in two, has all the appearances of might it ever had. The storm blast whistles through the branches of the empire even now. Listen with the ears of psychohistory, and you will hear the creaking. We are not here, Dr. Selden, to... The empire will vanish, and all its good with it. Its accumulated knowledge will decay, and the order it has imposed will vanish. Interstellar wars will be endless. Interstellar trade will decay. Population will decline. Worlds will lose touch with the main body of the galaxy. And so... Matters will remain. Forever? Psychohistory, which can predict the fall, can make statements concerning the succeeding Dark Ages. The Empire, gentlemen, as has just been said, stood twelve thousand years. The Dark Ages to come will endure not twelve, but thirty thousand years. The Second Empire will rise, but between it and our civilization will be one thousand generations of suffering humanity. We must fight that. You contradict yourself. You said earlier that you could not prevent the destruction of Trantor, hence, presumably, the fall, this so-called fall of the Empire. I do not say now that we can prevent the fall. But it is not yet too late to shorten the interregnum which will follow. It is possible, gentlemen, to reduce the duration of anarchy to a single millennium. If my group is allowed to act now, we are at a delicate moment in history. The huge, onrushing mass of events must be deflected just a little, just a little. It cannot be much, but it may be enough to remove 29,000 years of misery from human history. How do you propose to do this? By saving the knowledge of the race. The sum of human knowing is beyond any one man, any thousand men. With the destruction of our social fabric, science will be broken into a million pieces. Individuals will know much of exceedingly tiny facets of which there is to know. They will be helpless and useless by themselves. The bits of law, meaningless, will not be passed on. They will be lost through the generations. But... If we now prepare a giant summary of all knowledge, it will never be lost. Coming generations will build on it and will not have to rediscover it for themselves. One millennium will do the work of 30,000. All this? 
all my project, my thirty thousand men with their wives and children, are devoting themselves to the preparation of an Encyclopedia Galactica. They will not complete it in their lifetimes. I will not even live to see it fairly begun. But by the time Krantor falls, it will be complete, and copies will exist in every major library in the galaxy. The Chief Commissioner's gavel rose and fell. Harry Selden left the stand and quietly took his seat next to Gaul. He smiled and said, How do you like the show? Gaul said, You stole it. But what will happen now? They'll adjourn the trial and try to come to a private agreement with me. How do you know? Selden said, I'll be honest. I don't know. It depends on the Chief Commissioner. I've studied him for years. I've tried to analyze his workings. But you know how risky it is to introduce the vagaries of an individual in the psychohistoric equations. Yet, I have hopes. Abakim approached and nodded to Gaul, leaned over to whisper to Selden. The cry of a German rang out, and guards separated them. Gaul was led away. The next day's hearings were entirely different. Harry Selden and Gaul Dornick were alone with the commission. They were seated at the table together, with scarcely a separation between the five judges and the two accused. They were even offered cigars from a box of iridescent plastic which had the appearance of water endlessly flowing. The eyes were fooled into seeing the motion, although the fingers reported it to be hard and dry. Selden accepted one. Gaul refused. Selden said, My lawyer is not present. A commissioner replied, This is no longer a trial, Dr. Selden. We are here to discuss the safety of the state. Lynch Chen said, I will speak and the other commissioners sat back in their chairs prepared to listen. A silence formed about Chen into which he might drop his words. Gaul held his breath. Chen, lean and hard, older in looks than in fact was the actual emperor of all the galaxy. The child who bore the title itself was only a symbol manufactured by Chen, and not the first such either. Chen said, Dr. Selden, you disturb the peace of the emperor's realm. None of the quadrillions living now among all the stars of the galaxy will be living a century from now. Why, then, should we concern ourselves with events of five centuries' distance? I shall not be alive half a decade hence, said Selden, and yet it is of overpowering concern to me. Call it idealism. Call it an identification of myself with that mystical generalization to which we refer by the term man. I do not wish to take the trouble to understand mysticism. Can you tell me why I may not rid myself of yourself and of an uncomfortable and unnecessary five-century future which I will never see by having you executed tonight? A week ago, said Selden lightly, you might have done so and perhaps retained a one in ten probability of yourself remaining alive at year's end. Today, the one in ten probability is scarcely one in ten thousand. There were expired breaths in the gathering, and uneasy stirrings. Gaul felt the short hairs prickle on the back of his neck. Chen's upper eyelids dropped a little. How so? The fall of Trantor, said Selden, cannot be stopped by any conceivable effort. It can be hastened easily, however. The tale of my interrupted trial will spread through the galaxy. Frustration of my plans to lighten the disaster will convince people that the future holds no promise to them. Already they recall the lives of their grandfathers with envy. They will see that political revolutions and trade stagnations will increase. The feeling will pervade the galaxy that only what a man can grasp for himself at that moment will be of any account. 
Ambitious men will not wait, and unscrupulous men will not hang back. By their every action they will hasten the decay of the worlds. Have me killed, and Crantor will fall not within five centuries, but within fifty years. And you, yourself, within a single year. Chen said, These are words to frighten children, and yet your death is not the only answer which will satisfy us. He lifted his slender hand from the papers on which it rested, so that only two fingers touched lightly upon the topmost sheet. Tell me, he said, will your only activity be that of preparing this encyclopedia you speak of? It will. And need that be done on Trantor? Trantor, my lord, possesses the Imperial Library, as well as the scholarly resources of the University of Trantor. And yet, if you were located elsewhere, let us say upon a planet where the hurry and the distractions of a metropolis will not interfere with the scholastic musings, where your men may devote themselves entirely and single-mindedly to their work, might that not have advantages? Minor ones, perhaps. Such a world has been chosen, then. You may work, Doctor, at your leisure with your hundred thousand about you. The galaxy will know that you are working and fighting the fall. They will even be told that you will prevent the fall. He smiled. Since I do not believe in so many things, it is not difficult for me to disbelieve in the fall as well, so that I am entirely convinced I will be telling the truth to the people. And meanwhile, Doctor, you will not trouble Trantor, and there will be no disturbance of the Emperor's peace. The alternative is death for yourself, and for as many of your followers as will seem necessary. Your earlier threats I disregard. The opportunity for choosing between death and exile is given you over a time period stretching from this moment to one five minutes hence. Which is the world chosen, my lord? said Selden. It is called, I believe, Terminus, said Chen. Negligently, he turned the papers upon his desk with his fingertips, so that they faced Selden. It is uninhabited, but quite habitable, and can be molded to suit the necessities of scholars. It is somewhat secluded, Selden interrupted. It is at the edge of the galaxy, sir. As I have said, somewhat secluded, it will suit your needs for concentration. Come, you have two minutes left, Selden said. We will need time to arrange such a trip. There are 20,000 families involved. You will be given time. Selden thought a moment, and the last minute began to die. He said, I accept exile. Gaul's heart skipped a beat at the words. For the most part, he was filled with a tremendous joy, for who would not be to escape death? Yet in all his vast relief, he found space for a little regret that Selden had been defeated. For a long while they sat silently as the taxi winds through the hundreds of miles of worm-like tunnels toward the university, and then Gaul stirred. He said, Was what you told the commissioner true? Would your execution have really hastened the fall? Selden said, I never lie about psychohistoric findings, nor would it have availed me in this case. Chen knew I spoke the truth. He is a very clever politician, and politicians, by the very nature of their work, must have an instinctive feeling for the truths of psychohistory. Then... Need you have accepted exile? Gaul wondered, but Selden did not answer. When they burst out upon the university grounds, Gaul's muscles took action of their own, or rather inaction. He had to be carried almost out of the taxi. 
All the university was a blaze of light. Gaul had almost forgotten that a sun could exist. Nor was the university in the open. Its buildings were covered by a monstrous dome of glass and yet not glass. It was polarized so that Gaul could look directly upon the blazing star above. Yet its light was undimmed and it glanced off the metal buildings as far as the eye could see. The university structures themselves lacked the hard steel gray of the rest of Krantor. They were silvery, rather. The metallic luster was almost ivory in color. Selden said, Soldiers, it seems. What? Gaul brought his eyes to the prosaic ground and found a sentinel ahead of them. They stopped before him, and a soft-spoken captain materialized from a nearby doorway. He said, Dr. Selden? Yes. We have been waiting for you. You and your men will be under martial law henceforth. I have been instructed to inform you that six months will be allowed you for preparations to leave for Terminus. Six months? began Gaul, but Selden's fingers were upon his elbow with gentle pressure. These are my instructions, repeated the captain. He was gone, and Gaul returned to Selden. Why, what can be done in six months? This is but slower murder. Quietly, quietly, let us reach my office. It was not a large office, but it was quite spy-proof and quite undetectably so. Spy beams trained upon it received neither suspicious silence nor even more suspicious static. They received, rather, a conversation constructed at random out of a vast stock of innocuous phrases in various tones and voices. Now, said Selden at his ease, six months will be enough. I don't see how. Because, my boy, in a plan such as ours, the actions of others are bent to our needs. Have I not said to you already that Shin's temperamental makeup has been subjected to greater scrutiny than that of any other single man in history? The trial was not allowed to begin until the time and circumstances were right for the ending of our own choosing. But, but could you have arranged to the exile to Terminus? Why not? He put his fingers on a certain spot on his desk and a small section of the wall behind him slid aside. Only his own fingers could have done so, since only his particular print pattern could have activated the scanner beneath. You will find several microfilms inside, said Selden. Take the one marked with the letter T. Gaul did so and waited while Selden fixed it within the projector and handed the young man a pair of eyepieces. Gaul adjusted them and watched the film unroll before his eyes. He said, But then, Selden said, What surprises you? Have you been preparing to leave for two years? Two and a half. Of course, we could not be certain that it would be Terminus he would choose, but we hoped it might be, and we acted upon that assumption. But why, Dr. Selden, if you arrange the exile, why? Could not events be far better controlled here on Trantor? Why, there are some reasons. Working on Terminus, we will have Imperial support without ever rousing fears that we would endanger Imperial safety. Gaul said, but you arouse those fears only to force exile. I still do not understand. Twenty thousand families would not travel to the end of the galaxy of their own will, perhaps. But why should they be forced there? Gaul paused. May I not know? Selden said, not yet. It is enough for the moment that you know that a scientific refuge will be established on Terminus, and another will be established at the other end of the galaxy, let us say, and he smiled, at star's end. And as for the rest, I will die soon, and you will see more than I. No, 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 spare me your shock and good wishes. 
My doctors tell me that I cannot live longer than a year or two. But then, I have accomplished in life what I have intended. And under what circumstances may one better die? And after you die, sir, why, there will be successors, perhaps even yourself. And these successors will be able to apply the final touch in the scheme and instigate the revolt on Anacreon at the right time and in the right manner. Thereafter, events may roll unheeded. I, I do not understand. You will. Selden's lined face grew peaceful and tired both at once. Most will leave for terminus, but some will stay. It will be easy to arrange. But as for me, and he concluded in a whisper so that Gaul could scarcely hear him, I That's the show for tonight, folks. We hope you all enjoyed it. But of course, before we leave you, we have to have one more thing. Frank, what is that one more thing? We're sneaking in one more birthday tonight, and that's the birthday of Edgar Allan Poe, born January 19th back in 1809, a poet, editor, literary critic, and writer of mysteries and horror. In honor of the man, we have a special reading by the great Basil Rathbone of the macabre story, the Facts in the Case of M. Valdemir. So, this is Uncle Frank. And this is Jimmy Sweets. See you next time. Of course, I shall not pretend to consider it any matter for wonder that the extraordinary case of Monsieur Valdemar has excited discussion. It would have been a miracle had it not, especially under the circumstances. It is now rendered necessary that I give the facts as far as I comprehend them myself. They are succinctly these. Uh, my attention uh, for the last three years had been repeatedly drawn to the subject of mesmerism, and about nine months ago, it occurred to me quite suddenly that in the series of experiments made hitherto, there had been a very remarkable and most unaccountable omission. No person had as yet been mesmerized in articulo mortis. It remained to be seen first, whether in such condition there existed in the patient any susceptibility to the magnetic influence. Secondly, whether, if any existed, it was impaired or increased by the condition. Thirdly, to what extent or for how long a period the encroachments of death might be arrested by the process. In looking around me for some subject by whose means I might test these particulars, I was brought to think of my friend Monsieur Ernest Valdemar, the well-known compiler of the Bibliotheca Forensica, and author under the nom de plume of Isaac Marx of the Polish versions of Wallenstein and Gargantua. Uh, Monsieur Valdemar, who has resided principally at Harlem, New York, since the year 1839, is, or was, uh, particularly noticeable for the extreme spareness of his person. His lower limbs much resembling those of John Randolph, and also for the whiteness of his whiskers, in violent contrast to the blackness of his hair, the latter in consequence being very generally mistaken for a wig. His temperament was markedly nervous and rendered him a good subject for mesmeric experiment. On two or three occasions, I put him to sleep with little difficulty, but was disappointed in other results, uh, which his peculiar constitution had naturally led me to anticipate. His will was at no period positively or thoroughly under my control. 
I always attributed my failure at these points to the disordered state of his health. For some months previous to my becoming acquainted with him, his physicians had declared him in a confirmed tisis. It was his custom, indeed, to speak calmly of his approaching dissolution, as of a matter neither to be avoided nor regretted. When the ideas to which I have alluded first occurred to me, it was, of course, very natural that I should think of Monsieur Valdemar. I knew the steady philosophy of the man too well to apprehend any scruples from him. And he had no relatives in America who would be likely to interfere. I spoke to him frankly upon the subject, and to my surprise, his interest seemed vividly excited. I say to my surprise, for although he had always yielded his person freely to my experiments, he had never before given me any tokens of sympathy with what I did. His disease was of that character which would admit of exact calculation in respect to the epoch of its termination in death, and it was finally arranged between us that he would send for me about 24 hours before the period announced by his physicians as that of his decease. It is now rather more than seven months since I received from Monsieur Valdemar himself the subjoined note. My dear P., you may as well come now. D and F are agreed that I cannot hold up beyond tomorrow midnight, and I think they have hit the time very nearly. Valdemar. I received this note within half an hour after it was written, and in 15 minutes more I was in the dying man's chamber. I had not seen him for ten days. I was appalled by the fearful alteration which the brief interval had wrought in him. His face wore a leaden hue, the eyes were utterly lustreless, and the emaciation was so extreme that the skin had been broken through by the cheekbones. Doctors D and F were in attendance. After pressing Valdemar's hand, I took these gentlemen aside and obtained from them my new account of the patient's condition. The left lung had been for 18 months in a semi-osseous or cartilaginous state, and was, of course, entirely useless for all purposes of vitality. The right in its upper portion was also partially, if not thoroughly, ossified, while the lower region was merely a mass of purulent tubercles, running one into another. It was the opinion of both physicians that Monsieur Valdemar would die about midnight on the morrow, Sunday. It was then about seven o'clock on Saturday evening. When they'd gone, I spoke freely with Monsieur Valdemar on the subject of his approaching dissolution, as well as, uh, more particularly, of the experiment proposed. It wanted about five minutes of eight when, taking the patient's hand, I begged him to state as distinctly as he could whether he was entirely willing that I should make the experiment of mesmerizing him in his then condition. He replied feebly, yet quite audibly, Yes. I wish to be mesmerized. I fear you have deferred it too long. While he spoke thus, I commenced the passes, which I had already found most effectual in subduing him. He was evidently influenced with the first lateral stroke of my hand across his forehead. But although I exerted all my powers, no further perceptible effect was induced until some minutes after ten o'clock, when doctors D and F called according to appointment. I explained to them in a few words what I designed, and as they opposed no objection, saying that the patient was already in the death agony, I proceeded without hesitation. 
exchanging, however, the lateral passes for downward ones and directing my gaze entirely into the right eye of the sufferer. By this time his pulse was imperceptible and his breathing was stertorous, and at intervals of half a minute. The patient's extremities were of an icy coldness. At five minutes before eleven, I perceived unequivocal signs of mesmeric influence. The glassy roll of the eye was changed for that expression of uneasy inward examination, which is never seen except in cases of sleep-waking. With a few rapid lateral passes, I made the lids quiver, as in incipient sleep, and with a few more, I closed them altogether. I was not satisfied, however, with this, but continued the manipulations vigorously and with the fullest exertion of the will until I had completely stiffened the limbs of the slumberer after placing them in a seemingly easy position. When I had accomplished this, it was fully midnight, and I requested the gentleman present to examine Monsieur Valdemar's condition. The pulse was imperceptible. The breathing was gentle, scarcely noticeable unless through the application of a mirror to the lips. The eyes were closed naturally, and the limbs were as rigid and as cold as marble. Still, the general appearance was certainly not that of death. As I approached Monsieur Valdemar, I made a kind of half-effort to influence his right arm into pursuit of my own, as I passed the latter gently to and fro above his person. In such experiments with this patient, I had never perfectly succeeded before, and assuredly I had little thought of succeeding now. But to my astonishment, his arm very readily, although feebly, followed every direction I assigned it with mine. I determined to hazard a few words of conversation. Monsieur Valdemar, I said, are you asleep? He made no answer, but I perceived a tremor about his lips and was thus induced to repeat the question again and again. At the third repetition, his whole frame was agitated by a very slight shivering. The eyelids unclosed themselves so far as to display a white line of a ball. The lips moved sluggishly and from between them, in a barely audible whisper, issued the words, Yes, asleep now. Do not wake me. Let me die so. It was now the opinion, or rather the wish of the physicians, that Monsieur Valdemar should be suffered to remain undisturbed in his present apparently tranquil condition until death should supervene. And this, it was generally agreed, must now take place within a few minutes. I concluded, however, to speak to him once more, and merely repeated my previous question. While I spoke, there came a marked change over the countenance of the sleepwaker. The eyes rolled themselves slowly open, the pupils disappearing upwardly. The skin generally assumed a cadaverous hue, resembling not so much parchment as white paper and the circular hectic spots which hitherto had been strongly defined in the centre of each cheek went out at once. I use this expression because the suddenness of their departure put me in mind of nothing so much as the extinguishment of a candle by a puff of breath. The upper lip at the same time writhed itself away from the teeth, 
which it had previously covered completely, while the lower jaw fell with an audible jerk, leaving the mouth widely extended and disclosing a full view of the swollen and blackened tongue. I presume the new member of the party then present had been unaccustomed to deathbed horrors, but so hideous beyond conception was the appearance of Monsieur Valdemar at this moment that there was a general shrinking back from the region of the bed. I now feel that I have reached a point in this narrative at which every reader will be startled into positive disbelief. It is my business, however, simply to proceed. There was no longer the faintest sign of vitality in Monsieur Valdemar, and concluding him to be dead, we were consigning him to the charge of the nurses when a strong vibratory motion was observable in the tongue. This continued for perhaps a minute. At the expiration of this period, there issued from the distended and motionless jaws a voice, such as it would be madness in me to attempt describing. Monsieur Valdemar spoke, obviously in reply to a question I had propounded to him a few minutes before. I had asked him, it will be remembered, if he still slept. He now said, person present, even affected to deny or attempt to repress the unutterable shuddering horror which these few words thus uttered were so well calculated to convey. The nurses immediately left the chamber and could not be induced to return. My own impressions I would not pretend to render intelligible to the reader. Without the utterance of a word, we addressed ourselves again to an investigation of Monsieur Valdemar's condition. It remained in all respects, as I have last described it, with the exception that the mirror no longer afforded evidence of respiration. An attempt to draw blood from the arm failed. The only real indication of the mesmeric influence was now found in the vibratory motion of the tongue whenever I addressed Monsieur Valdemar a question. He seemed to be making an effort to reply, but had no longer sufficient volition. I believe that I have now related all that is necessary to an understanding of the sleepwaker's state at this epoch. It was evident that so far death, or what is usually termed death, had been arrested by the mesmeric process. It seemed clear to us all that to awaken Monsieur Valdemar would be merely to ensure his instant, or at least his speedy, dissolution. From this period until the close of last week, an interval of nearly seven months. We continued to make daily calls at Monsieur Valdemar's house, accompanied now and then by medical or other friends. All this time, the sleep waker remained exactly as I have last described him. The nurses' attentions were continual. It was on Friday last that we finally resolved to make the experiment of awakening or attempting to awaken him. And it is the perhaps unfortunate result of this latter experiment which has given rise to so much discussion in private circles, to so much of what I cannot help thinking unwarranted popular feeling. For the purpose of relieving Monsieur Valdemar from mesmeric trance, 
I made use of the customary passes. These, for a time, were unsuccessful. The first indication of revival was afforded by a partial descent of the iris. It was observed as especially remarkable that this lowering of the pupil was accompanied by the profuse outflowing of a yellowish ichor from beneath the lids, of a pungent and highly offensive odour. Dr. F. then intimated a desire to have me put a question. I did so as follows. Monsieur Valdemar, can you explain to us what are your feelings or wishes now? There was an instant return of the hectic circles on the cheeks. The tongue quivered, or rather rolled violently in the mouth, although the jaws and lips remained rigid as before, and at length the same hideous voice which I've already described broke forth. Oh, God's sake, quick, quick, put me to sleep. Oh, quick, awaken me, quick, I say to you that I am. I was thoroughly unnerved, and for an instant remained undecided what to do. At first I made an endeavour to recompose the patient, but failing in this, through total abeyance of the will, I retracted my steps and as earnestly struggled to awaken him. In this attempt I soon saw that I should be successful, or at least I soon fancied that my success would be complete and I am sure that all in the room were prepared to see the patient awaken. For what really occurred, however, it is quite impossible that any human being could have been prepared. As I rapidly made the mesmeric passes, amid ejaculations of dead, dead, absolutely bursting from the tongue and not from the lips of the sufferer, his whole frame at once shrunk, crumbled, absolutely rotted away beneath my hands, upon the bed before the whole company. There lay a nearly liquid mass of loathsome, of detestable putrescence.